For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Avast, for supporting the Bureau. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Hey, I'm genuinely excited and grateful for our newest sponsor, Athletic Greens. Thanks to Athletic Greens supporting the Bureau podcast, you get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens, that's one word, dot com backslash frank to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now to the podcast. I'm Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. Going deep beneath the battle for Ukraine, the espionage, the spy versus spy. The Boston Marathon bombings. It's a cop-to-cop mission to catch bad guys. The reality is Putin has nothing to lose. The FSB, the Internal Intelligence Service, the successor to the KGB. And so I think they're trying to thread a very difficult needle here. Invading a neighboring territory. There's no oversight committee within their Duma that's watching them. And corruption is, is rampant. It gives China a freer hand in, in Asia. This is embarrassing, as you said, for, for them. Their sources that they are running in Russia failed. So... Russia has asked China for help in Ukraine. President Biden has talked to President Xi about that request. Vladimir Putin is purging his senior intelligence officials, even arresting a senior FSB executive. Meanwhile, at the White House, our National Security Council ponders Putin's next move. Imagine if we could have, right here on the Bureau, a guest, maybe an FBI agent, who was assigned to the FBI's office in Moscow, then assigned as the FBI senior official in China, and then posted as the FBI's representative to the National Security Council. Well, we've got that guy. Holden Triplett worked in the FBI's legal attache offices in Moscow and Beijing, and then as director of counterintelligence at the National Security Council. He's now an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service, and he's our guest on this special episode of the Bureau. Holden, thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks very much, Frank. I appreciate the introduction. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion because I I, I think, I I know the word unique is overused. I I won't use it, but you are especially situated for us in terms of what's happening, playing out on our TV screens every night, geopolitically. And I I would be remiss if I didn't didn't, uh, ask you what's on everybody's mind about Russia, China, and the White House, and uh, your perspectives on the, even the cultures that we're talking about. You know, we're, we're facing a moment here where, let's not forget, Russia has allegedly asked China for help um, with Ukraine. I mean, even reportedly to include uh, meals for troops uh, from China. So, and China, the last time we heard, was saying, yeah, no, prob- probably not. And and President Biden has had a conversation with them. So I want to start, of course, bec- uh, where we always start with our guests, because our our listeners love this, the personal story of our guests, and, and you're going to be no exception. So Holden, let's start with how you found yourself headed to the FBI and 
where you're from, where you went to school, all that good stuff. Sure. Thanks. Um, so I, I came at the FBI, I think it, it almost seemed like from my um, background that I was sort of always going to go there and destined, but I actually never thought about it, um, frankly, in, in, until 9-11. Um, but, but let me even go back a little bit farther. So my father was a special agent with the FBI uh, for 30 years. So from 1968, um, essentially to a little bit into 1999. So he was first in um, during the Hoover time. And in fact, when he was at the academy, he had um, got injured and had to go to the hospital and Hoover came to visit him at the hospital, which was a just very interesting to hear that story. And I, and I actually grew up, um, both of my uh, grandfathers had passed before I was born and we had a bunch of pictures of, um, of Hoover around the house. And so, I don't know, until I was five or six, I think I was pretty sure he was my grandfather, um, which again, I, <laughs> that would be, that would be breaking news right here on the Bureau. Yeah. Podcast. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I know that he's not at this point, but, uh, you know, as a, as a five or six year old, you see an older man who's a bunch of pictures around that my dad had in his office and you just sort of assume like, oh, okay, well he must be a relative or, or something. So maybe psychologically I was always destined to, to go into the Bureau, but you know, because my dad did it, I, I thought, well, I'll do something else. Um, so I, I went to, um, you know, I got I born in California where we were, um, my dad was stationed at the San Francisco office. And um, then he got moved to Kansas City near his parents and, and my mom's parents. And I grew up in Kansas. And um, he was from a really small town originally um, called Mountain View, Missouri, where there's no mountain and um, no view, actually. And um, <laughs> that's okay. He, <laughs> yeah. he didn't have um, running water or electricity until he was 18. So it just, it, Kind of hard to imagine, but um, it was a it was a very sort of uh, poor place. So the bureau took him to a, amazing places after that. But um, after high school, I decided I wasn't ready for college, and um, I was I studied abroad in Russia in a, a city called Krasnodar, a small city, although over a million people in, in the south. Um, that's actually very close to Chechnya and Ukraine. So sort of back in the news. What was the what was the the interest at that young age in exploring Russia? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think there was a little bit of, so this is, um, you know, 92, 93 when I was a senior in high school. And I think there was a bit of, uh, you know, know your enemy. And it was the, it was just after the Cold War. And so there was still this mystique about it. And I came in later to find out that at the time, of course, my dad was actually working counterintelligence in, in Kansas City. So I think it must have freaked him out a lot that I was <laughs> deciding to become an exchange student to Russia. Um, but I think it's easy to forget now, but back then it was, you know, Hey, we were all going to be friends. We were all going to, you know, it was going to be a, a, you know, a different moment, right. That a different world that we were, we were entering. And so I sort of thought this would be a really interesting place to go. I didn't want to go to college quite yet. And so I, I did a year abroad there. Um, didn't know Russian at all. So it was, it was a bit rough at first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and so now looking back with all of your FBI experience, national security exposure, uh, when you look back, do you go, hmm, I wonder if I came on the radar screen of the Russian Intel services when I was a kid studying there? What do you, what do you think? <laughs> well, we always thought about it when we were there. I mean, there was only about, uh, there were only a few programs going on and there were only 10 of us in the city. And so we sort of imagined that at some point and um, Krasnodar is kind of a, a red, uh, like as in very still communist uh, place. I mean, it always has been. And so we sort of assumed that there was um, kind of a, quite a bit of interest from us, um, from the intelligence services there. And, and funnily enough, my, my dad, who was still in the Bureau at the time, had been doing some international training and had met some um, Russian police officers who were from St. Petersburg. And I had gone up to St. Petersburg for a kind of a tourist trip and had met with them um, just to say hello and stuff. And so they were known to the Bureau and had done some joint training with the Bureau um, but I always sort of assumed that one of them or maybe all of them were um, at least associated or talking with the intelligence services over there. Right. Of course. So uh, some fluency uh, develops in, in the Russian language? It, yeah. it did. I, I, yeah. I learned it pretty well. And then I came back and went to um, University of Texas at Austin and um, was a Russian literature and, um, uh, and actually a philosophy major. Um, mm. Not super marketable. <laughs> so I ended up going yeah. to law school. That, as, every, as every parent, as every parent asks, what are you going to do with that? Right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, I work and, at a coffee shop, right? <laughs> yeah. And it turns out you did pretty well with that because then you, you, after uh, university of Texas, you end up at law school. Was that directly from undergrad? 
No, I um, I, I took a, another year off. I, it sounds like I keep escaping. I actually went to Japan for a year um, and lived in Kobe. Um, I worked. Um, there was a, a. It's called the Jet Program. You work for the Japanese government, and they put you in. Um, you know, teaching uh, English and American culture. And I, I worked in the middle school there for a year in Kobe, where they had the big earthquake. Um, you know, many years ago, and um, it was a great experience. Um, came back, moved to San Francisco, uh, worked for a law firm for a year as I was applying for law school, and then ended up getting into um, to Berkeley and, and went there for law school. Got it. Got it. And then um, the FBI somehow comes up as a possibility. Obviously, your dad served, so not a far-flung idea, but tell me about that process. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I started and actually had every intention of doing something completely different. Um, and then my second year of law school, um, 9-11 happened. And um, like everyone else, I, I wanted to participate in some way to help out. I felt this was kind of the calling of my generation and, and I, I had to do it some way. Um, I actually was very close just to quitting law school and um, joining the military. My parents convinced me that there are many ways to help and serve your country. Finish law school, <laughs> very practical advice. And then think about what you can do. Um, and that actually turned out very well uh, or, uh, for me. And, and so I finished um, and then started the process of applying for a bunch of different um, positions in the intelligence community, one of which was at the Bureau. And they actually moved faster than anyone else. And the Bureau was designated as sort of the main um, kind of investigative arm for the government to deal with terrorism. And I wanted to, I wanted to do counterterrorism work. And so that took me into the Bureau at the end of 2005, beginning of 2006. I went to the okay. Academy. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many agents I've encountered, even on this podcast. I and mean, we've been doing this podcast since May of last year. And the number of guests I've had as active duty agents who say they were motivated by 9-11. Um, it's really a testament to you know, public service and motivations of Americans. Okay. You come into the Bureau, and what does the FBI have you doing? So I thought, you know, I came in with a law degree and with Russian language skills. So I just assumed that they'd be making me work Russian matters right away, even though I wanted to work counterterrorism. So, um, and, and this will be no surprise to you, Frank, and any of your others, of course. Yeah, the Bureau's like, that's nice that you have those skills, but we're going to make you do counterterrorism work, and you're going to go learn some Arabic. So <laughs> I took yep. some Arabic classes and um, ended up working um, counterterrorism matters in New York, where it was my first office, and ended up working on 9-11 um, matters, of all things. And um, ended up working on a, a, a particular case that actually just came to light you know, this past year on the 20th anniversary called Operation Encore or Op Encore that the Bureau um, Biden just released this. Um, it was an investigation into the um, essentially potentially some help by the Saudi government um, to the 9-11 hijackers. So I actually ended up starting that investigation in New York, um, following it for a time and then passing it off when I um, went on to take a squad in counterintelligence. Yeah, we've had as a guest recently, Ali Soufan, another uh, a guy who was a major player in the investigation of Al-Qaeda. One of the early uh, early warnings in the Bureau came from Ali Soufan saying, we've, we've got a problem here with this group called Al-Qaeda and this guy called Osama bin Laden. Okay, how, how do you get from New York counterterrorism to, I'm going to be assigned overseas? How does that happen? <laughs> Well, so maybe you get the idea that I liked being overseas. I've been to I've been to Russia. I actually went back again in college. I've been there twice as an exchange student. I've been in Japan. After law school, I'd, I'd gone done my my bar trip, as they say, to to China for four months in Beijing to kind of learn some Chinese language. So I really liked it. So I we, I'd always wanted to do it, um, but as you know, it, it's they're often very coveted positions. So you usually get into them uh, much later in your career. Um, but Moscow is not one that's um, highly desirable, <laughs> which maybe isn't a right. huge surprise. Um, while the work is super interesting, um, you know, it, it's 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 a difficult relationship. And it sounds like you you've done some some programs on it already. But as as your viewers or your listeners probably understand it, your you know your job over there is to um, liaise with the local service. So um, our main partner there was the FSB, who obviously is in the news, um, and trying to find areas of mutual cooperation and, and areas that we can um, can talk on and, and, and work together on was 
was extremely difficult, um, but I, I thought was was super interesting. It's probably worth pausing there uh, for sure. those listeners who for those listeners who may not have caught earlier episodes where we talked with FBI legal attaches assigned abroad. We talked to uh, a legal attaché in Ottawa, Canada. We talked to a senior executive at headquarters who oversees the legal attaché program. Uh, let me remind, or, or for the first time, tell our, our listeners that the FBI indeed has offices overseas. In fact, you know, you could argue, well, they've actually technically got more offices overseas than they do in the, inside the U.S. in the sense that they have 56 field offices, of course, hundreds of satellite offices in the U.S., and they have 60 or more uh, offices abroad. But it's an entirely, as, as uh, Holden has reminded us, it's entirely a law enforcement liaison mission. Crime, all crime is global. And even, even in adversarial nations, the FBI hangs a shingle. And it's, all, it's, it's within the U.S. embassy and consulate community. It doesn't say FBI on the door uh, in the hallway uh, inside the U.S. Embassy or Consulate, and it doesn't say necessarily FBI agent on your business card. It says legal attache, just to keep people calm. And, and so there's no, <laughs> there's no spying going on. It's a cop-to-cop mission to catch bad guys. Do I have that pretty right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, and you're absolutely right that the, the Bureau doesn't discriminate between saying, hey, even if we have difficult political relations, um, as you said, crime doesn't knows no borders, and there are situations in which um, even you know rivals or potential adversaries, uh, you know, at at the geopolitical level, want to cooperate on a kind of a, you know a law enforcement officer to law enforcement officer, and so you know we always look for where are those things that are less politicized or difficult to deal with, um, you know, and you're still dealing with an intelligence service with the FSB. I mean, they they are the successor to the KGB or the the main successor to the KGB. And so we always kind of had to keep our hands on our wallet, as you say, um, whenever we're, we're, we're dealing with them. Yeah. But we actually had a pretty significant event um, that led to some really close cooperation while I was there. The Boston Marathon bombings happened um, in, in 2013, and I was um, uh, stationed there. And as people may remember, the uh, Tsarnaev brothers... Uh, the summer before, had spent a good amount of time in Dagestan, which is a, a um, republic within the, the Russian Federation, actually down in the south, where I had lit near where I lived near Krasnodar, and so we were there and and asked for assistance um, from the FSB, um, some asked some from investigative help, that's assistance, and um, I ended up um, interviewing the Tsarnaev brothers' parents. A few days after um, the younger brother uh, Johar was um, was captured, it's a fascinating experience just interviewing them, but also watching a bit how FSB worked, um, how they worked in Dagestan, which they considered essentially a war zone in many ways, even though it's within the territory of Russia. Um, and so it was a, it was a really fascinating experience, um, and they were actually very helpful in that. The pa- the parents were, or the FSB, or both. Actually, a little bit of both, um, you know, just starting first with the FSB. I mean, they, I think in many ways, they saw, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing as confirmation that they had a terrorist threat and that we should be allied together against them. And they thought this would potentially bring us closer together. You know, Director then Director Mueller actually came over to thank them. Then Assistant Director um, Andy McCabe came over. He was head of counterterrorism uh, at the time. And but the parents also were well helpful, although it was um, as you might imagine, it was it was a bit um, traumatic for them, and so it was uh, the interviews had to be a bit delicate um, in trying to work through and get you know our job as you know is just to get um, information out, and so uh, you know we we use build rapport and we, we're we're friendly and and that's in our way's mind the, the best way to get information out. I had some interesting exchanges with the FSB where they essentially said you know holding. You can go a little bit rougher if you need to. Yeah. It's okay with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have they have a different approach to interview rapport. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I said, well, I'm not really interested in in a, in a confession. I want information. Right. And then they just smiled and said, "Okay, well, you do what you need to do." <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and they'll they'll take it from there afterwards when you're not looking, perhaps. But yeah, I mean, that's look, right. not knocking on a parent's door and and saying, "Hey, your your son just blew up the Boston Marathon, and I have some questions." That's a tough. That's a tough it, discussion. Absolutely. No question. Uh, she was going outside to talk to the New York Times after each interview, um, and it was just mm. it was fascinating to watch. It was a you know, obviously a very different persona that she had out there, um, you know, yeah. very prideful um, and, and and disbelief that what was going on. But, it, you know, in the interviews, it was very clear that she knew that this had happened. And in many ways, you know, she knew that it was, had, had been coming. Um, yeah. I mean, not specifically, but was had concerns about her, her son, uh, Tom Erlang, the older one. And um, she was just, you know, at, at the time distraught about what had happened. Of course. Let me take a moment to thank a truly great sponsor, Athletic Greens. None of us are getting any younger. If you're like me, you're trying to stay fit, preserve energy levels, maintain your immune system, and improve your gut health. And if you're like me, taking a handful of vitamins and supplements every morning gets old fast. For the last few months, I've been taking a spoonful of Athletic Greens with a glass of water each morning. That one great-tasting scoop gives me 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that help me start my day right. Now, my gut health and immune system get all the support they need while my energy level and focus have increased. If you're taking vitamins and supplements, do you know if your body is actually absorbing them? For less than $3 a day, that's less than your calorie-laden mocha latte frappe fat juice, you can invest in your health like I have. Reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition that also helps fight off colds and flu. To make it easy, Athletic Greens will send you free a one-year supply of all important vitamin D and five free travel packs like what I use when I'm on the road. Visit athleticgreens.com slash frank. That's athleticgreens, one word, dot com slash frank to take ownership of your health and get the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now let's head back to the podcast. So you've mentioned the FSB, the Internal Intelligence Service, the successor to the KGB in, in a sense. Let's uh, let's move to today's news, the recent news, which is that Putin has fired senior people at FSB, including the head of a, a internet an international intelligence unit at the FSB that oversees intel for Ukraine. So, a couple of of questions first. What's going on with Putin and the FSB? And 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 writ large, he seems to be purging senior officials um, all over the place, including the military and intelligence community. But also, I have to say personally, I was intrigued by the fact that there actually was a unit in the internal service, the FSB, that actually collects intel externally against Ukraine. What what's that all about? Yeah, it's it's a bit confusing because so as I said the the FSB was the kind of main successor to the KGB. So it, it, just for your listeners the KGB obviously during Soviet times they really were like the the CIA and the FBI and 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 the and and border and and, and basically almost everyone combined into one super agency that had a, a lot of power. After the fall of the Soviet Union, they went through a couple of different iterations, but essentially there were two main successors, uh, the SVR um, which is kind of their external service, which is uh, probably akin mostly to the CIA and the FSB, which is really an internal security service, but does some intel. But confusingly, FSB does handle some international um, locations. Basically, it, it focuses on uh, what Russia calls its near abroad. And those are the 14 former republics of the Soviet Union. Um, and so they've always had that uh, remit um, and they've always been very active in you know Central Asia and Ukraine, Belarus, not not so much in the Baltics anymore, although they try very hard, um, and in the Caucasus. But that's really where they focus. And then in recent years, they've even started to expand a bit into Eastern Europe, um, and they've sort of butted up against uh, their their former colleagues in the, in the know, SVR. You know, there's I, I can't I can't go without saying how there's a glimpse and making them maybe I'm making a little bit too much out of it, but there's a glimpse there of the Russian psyche. By that I mean. Imagine if we heard that the FBI was also, hey, uh, we need you to collect intelligence on Canada and Mexico because, you know, they're neighbors. That, that would just be completely 
unfathomable. But for the in the Russian psyche, hey, our internal security service, hey, you better keep an eye on the uh, the neighbors because they're ours, and and we we got to we got to watch them because they used to be a part of us, right? Yeah, I mean, and I, I think you're absolutely right. It really does sort of speak to the way in which they view the world, and part of that is, as you've seen Putin talk about it, they believe that some of these you know quote new nations um, that were former republics aren't really real countries. Um, they're, they're essentially, uh, you know, they're, they're Russian territory. And, you know, for a long time, they were part of the Russian empire. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have a right to have their own self-determination or sovereignty or anything of that sort. But historically, they have been under um, Russian control. Um, and so the Russians have always seen this territory as, as really theirs and theirs that they need to, um, you know, control and, and deal with. And so, you know, I, I think that they they do see this this um, you know these fourteen republics as as something that is 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 their sphere of influence and their area that they need to to police um, in order to have uh, you know protection and you know national security. Indeed, and from your time on the ground there, working with the government, working with law enforcement and intel there, what can you share with us about? what you've learned about the, the Russian mentality. And I hate to, you know, it's not a monolith. You can't paint it all with a broad brush, but, um, and, and particularly with regard to the relationship between Putin and his Intel services, do you think there's anybody, is there a history of them, of, of anybody telling him the truth? Does the emperor, is, can anybody tell him the emperor has no clothes? Will he listen? Is it a fear-based relationship? What, what, if anything, did you observe over there? Yeah, so I mean, we'd start with you know sort of FSB mentality. Um, you know, like like you said, I mean, I'm careful of 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 painting you know all the Russian people the broad brushstroke, but I but I think there are some large sort of themes we can talk about. Um, certainly that that kind of are represented in, in the FSB sort of mentality. Um, and one of the main ones is that, is that they see chaos around every corner. And what I mean by that is that at any point things could just spiral out of control. Um, I, I had a lot of, you know, sort of anecdotal off the record discussions with with various members of the FSB while we were um, over there. And, you know, we talked about NATO and, and the United States and, um, you know, they hinted at concerns about NATO and expanding. And, you know, of course, my response is, you've you got to be kidding me there. It's a defensive organization. There, there's, there's no chance it's going to attack someone without reason. It would only defend its members, and et cetera, et cetera. And the response to a person, and this could have been orchestrated, again, that's entirely possible over there that they would give the same response to me, but was, Holden, we understand that NATO right now is, is defensive, but things change. And for example, in 1932, Germany was a basket case. By 1936, it had the strongest military in Europe. Things can change very frequently. And so in, in their mind, a, a strong NATO on their doorstep, while even if today it is not a threat, if it could be, Russia has got to think about how do they protect themselves if there was that sort of shift. Um, and so I think that really informs a lot of what they're doing today. Um, and while we may look at this and say, how could you ever think that Ukraine would be threatening to you? And their mindset, if they don't have that strategic depth, if they don't control that territory, um, they don't have security. And I don't want to defend them. I'm not agreeing with them. But that is their mentality. And I think we should understand that they think this way and plan accordingly. Mm. You know, we, during the Trump administration, we repeatedly uh, heard stories that, that concerned everyone about whether, number one, he was even reading his presidential daily brief. Number two, whether people in the intel community were getting him the hard truth. And we certainly had confirmed stories of intelligence agencies being, you know, people analysts being told, hey, don't don't work this up. This is a Russian issue. He'll, he'll be upset. Don't don't get this up to the White House. Don't cover this issue. Any sense of what happens with Putin and his intel and his briefings? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I mean, I've seen a lot, as you sort of hinted at, that if people believe that no one, a lot of the reasons they made mistakes is that people would not give, um, you know, Putin the, the, the truth. And, and that may be part of it. I mean, there may be a fear just generally of, of giving him bad news. But, you know, the, these are intel officers, law enforcement officers. They, they can project forward a little bit and think that, hey, if we give information that everything, if, if we you know have an invasion that we're going to quickly take over and that's not the case, what's going to happen to us? So I, I'm a little bit dubious about that that was the only thing going on. I actually think, and there's some information that's come out sort of recently, 
that there is just a significant amount of corruption and incompetence um, within the agency itself. I think we, on the, on the American side, tend to ha have a tendency to, to look at them and then think that they're 10 feet tall, they're playing three-dimensional chess, you know, they're looking 10 years down the road, et cetera, et cetera. And, and obviously, the, you know, they're a very competent service and, and, and world-class, but they make mistakes just like everybody else. They have a bureaucracy like everybody else. They have corrupt officials like everybody else. And I think it's important to remember that as much as, you know, for those of us, you know, we were in, you know, an intelligence and a law enforcement agency with heavy oversight, um, with, you know, a journalists and other parts of the media watching us and reporting on us, well, that can put a lot of pressure on us. It's a, it's ultimately a good pressure, that, that, but that doesn't exist in Russia. There is, there's no oversight committee within their Duma that's watching them and to ensure that they are not just, you know, not completely corrupt, but that they're not even, you know, that they're even compliant, that they're even competent. There's no media that's going to tell you sort of the, the evils or the, the problems that they have. And so my guess is, is that the organization is actually much more um, incompetent and, and has and, you know, it's not able to actually carry out as many tasks as we give them credit for. Um, I do think there's probably some fear of telling Putin at certain levels, um, certainly at the higher level, but I wouldn't discount the fact that they, they may have just missed it um, and they may have uh, you know, not done a good job of understanding the, the territory uh, in Ukraine. Yeah, he, he, Putin certainly, if nothing else, has has uh, the ability to point fingers. I mean, he's he's firing generals and senior intelligence level people, and if if he decides to take a position that look, I've I've not been well served by these people, I need to purge them and start anew, I, I, and it's not my fault. I think we're already headed there. I mean, there's even on the military side, there's even been reports that uh, money earmarked to upgrade. Russian military equipment has gone into the pockets of some of these generals. So that, I mean, nothing would surprise me. Corruption is, is rampant, of course. So you do how much time in the, now you're in a deputy legal attache position or assistant legat, is that right? Exactly right. Yeah. So I was there for two years. Um, yeah. And um, just as the relationship was starting to uh, crater the first time, <laughs> mm, yeah. it's on, not all my fault, um, but uh, Snowden, actually happened during that time. And then the first invasion of Ukraine at the end of 2014, um, or the middle of 2014. Or 2014 um, and, um, and then I, from there, I, I left at the, uh, towards the end of 2014. So, so let me get this right. While you're on, still on the ground representing the FBI, uh, a guy by the name of Ed Snowden uh, lands in Russia? That's right. And I, I think I can say now I offered multiple times to go to Shiremetevo, to the airport where he was, just maybe I could casually bump into him, but uh, that was not approved. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah. yeah it, that, that was happening while we were there. Um, and so um, obviously we were having lots of discussions um, at, at multiple levels um, with the government over there. Um, but yeah, that, that all played out and that, that sort of tainted the relationship in many ways. Um, uh, just left a bad feeling in everyone's mouth. Yeah. What do you think? Do you ever think we'll lay hands on Snowden? I don't think so. But I take some solace in the fact that I can't think of a better prison than to have to spend the rest of your life in Russia <laughs> with the FSB watching you. Because, <laughs> and I know that sounds very sinister, and I don't mean it really that way. But because I, 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 you know, I uh, host family in Russia. I think that, that as a as a people, as 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 most people are, they're they're wonderful and warm, and the culture is is amazing. Um, the security services obviously are very different, um, and and how they operate. But you know his his information it was it was valuable for a time, but he's 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 worn out that welcome, and at this point now he's just someone they have to take care of. Yeah. And I can guarantee you that they're thinking we spend all these resources, we provide this guy housing, he's out on Twitter saying things about us that sometimes we're not very happy about. Why are we keeping this guy around? Right. Why can't he just slip on the ice, hurt himself? Yeah. That sort of thing. So obviously, I, that's the worst thing. I don't want, wish anyone ill. No. So I, if I would, if I were him, I would turn myself in um, because it's only a matter of time before the FSB or someone else decides that he is more of a liability right. um, than an asset. Yeah, he may have overstayed his welcome if yeah, he was absolutely. even welcome in the first place. So that's an interesting <laughs> perspective. Um, you know, in terms of assignments abroad, when you're when you're involved in, in, in law enforcement intelligence work, we had as a recent guest. On the podcast, Rachel Vinman, the the wife of Lieutenant Colonel uh, Alexander Vinman, and um, you know she talked about she talked about being the the spouse of uh, of a military attaché assigned to Moscow, and 
what life was like there, and even an incident in the house where it was quite clear that there had been visitors um, just inside the home to remind them that we can come in and rearrange things whenever we like. And uh, uh, without getting into a great deal of detail, did you feel like, hey, I've, I certainly was reminded that I've got, I've got some minders uh, hanging around me? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, we actually served at the same time that the Vinmans were there, um, did not know them well, um, but we crossed over um, during the same time frame. But yes, I mean, I, I think in, in some ways the, the Bureau was a bit protected because, you know, we sat down on a regular basis with the very, and we're trying to cooperate and they wanted our cooperation from the very people that would be potentially harassing us, the FSB. And so I think they took a lighter touch, but I, I can remember a couple of times when we, I was out with the, my family and we were, you know, walking around and we would notice people and, you know, I tended to make it easier on them, knowing having been on the other side of counterintelligence and you know doing surveillance. Um, I didn't want to make their job hard because I knew that they could just come into my house at any point. You know, we had a dog, we had you know anything of my kids. They could have messed up, and so if they want to follow me, that's totally fine. Um, I do remember at one point we went to the zoo, and um, I turned around and there were five guys, all pretty beefy guys with headsets on, just staring at me. Just. I think, and they wanted to kind of make a little show of force so that I knew that at any point that they were there, even if I didn't always see them, that they were around um, just to know that I shouldn't be stepping out of line or trying to do anything that I shouldn't be doing, um, yeah, of which course. the Bureau never does. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh-huh. Not, not uh, over there, at least yeah. not, not, uh, not to the yeah. Intel world, I guess. So. Yeah. 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 They might, I mean, they might've thought that that zoo excursion caught them by surprise, or maybe you were going to be operational, or maybe they, like you said, they're just reminding you. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, so I, you, you finish your tour of duty in Moscow and what, uh, what's the FBI got for you next? <laughs> More punishment, apparently so, yeah, one, from, <laughs> no. from one garden spot to another. No, I, you know, I, I was finishing up and, um, I saw that, um, the legat position in Beijing was going to open up on time. And um, I just thought that would be fascinating. And, and there's, you know, there's a lot of similarities in, 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 in the sense of that, how we were dealing with them, obviously a lot of differences. I'd been interested in China and, um, you know, I, I thought it would be a, a really fascinating assignment and so put in and was fortunate enough to, to get, um, to get picked. And so we um, went from Moscow to, um, to Beijing and in, in 2014 and were there for about three years during that time. How did your How did your family feel about that? Back to back, not only back to back international assignments, but back to back assignments to hostile countries. <laughs> so my my kids were pretty young, so too young to protest, um, which is a good age to travel around with. <laughs> yeah. and so really, it was just uh, talking with my spouse, my wife, and to ensure that. She understood it. And, and I think, I mean, she was always been interested in, in international affairs as well. And, and so she really enjoyed it. And the nice thing about uh, the embassy is the State Department. Actually, there's a number of positions for spouses who have um, special qualifications. She's an attorney. And so she was able to work in both embassies, both in um, Moscow and, and Beijing. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a bit of a piece of where you know, we had to have some, some heart-to-heart discussions about, hey, they're going to be in our house. They're going to go through things. They may do little things to kind of bother us, but just don't let it get to you. And and um, you know, try to channel your 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 inner exhibitionist and try to enjoy the attention <laughs> as much as possible. Yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a tough one. That's a tough one. So um, now you become you you. It's a I, I, we might say this in jest, but it is a promotion, right? You become the legal attaché for Beijing. Is that correct? Yes. So it, it was a promotion. Um, I mean, as you know, these offices are fairly small. So, um, you know, but um, so there you it, the purview is a bit bigger. I actually covered um, two countries, Mongolia and China. But the, the issues, of course, with China were enough to keep a team of people busy. Um, there was just so much going on at that time. Mm. It, was a, it was a lot. Hey, I've devoted my career to security and safety. So let me share our new sponsor with you. Avast. Avast is a global leader in cybersecurity, and they've been taking care of business for over 30 years. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, regardless of who or where you are or how you connect. You can enjoy being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, gives you control of your online safety and privacy with a range of features. Learn more about Avast One 
at Avast.com. Their antivirus is award-winning. It stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Data breach monitoring lets you know if your online accounts are compromised or your passwords exposed. There's a battle going on inside your devices. Let Avast fight that battle for you. Secure your documents and photos with ransomware protection that stops bad guys from modifying or encrypting your own data. Every month, Avast prevents over one and a half billion attacks. So stop worrying and start fighting with Avast. Learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Now back to our guest. What was the bulk of the the work in terms of FBI leads uh, that went to you in Beijing? What was it a mixture of literally everything? Was it mostly white collar? Was it Drugs. What, what? How would you characterize it? Yeah, um, it, it was a huge mixture of things, um, and we really tried to stay obviously completely on the criminal, the purely criminal side. We, we couldn't really do any national security work, um, except with some terrorism work. But that became that became difficult because the way China deals with terrorism is, I mean, in some ways very similar to Russia. That you know, essentially anyone who's against the state is a terrorist, and um, that work becomes very complicated. We obviously in the U.S. we have a much more narrow definition, but we did a lot of, um, what are, as you're familiar with these child exploitation uh, crimes, um, which often can be child pornography or children yeah. who were kidnapped. Um, so obviously very horrific sorts of crimes, um, but usually ones that are you know completely apolitical. So it's in theory easier to cooperate on, although sometimes that wasn't even the case. Um, but we actually what we spent a lot of time on was cyber. Um, so I was there when the 2015 sort of infamous agreement between Obama and Xi was signed, where we were, you know, both sides agreed to limit economic espionage or essentially to, to, to ban economic espionage. The U.S. doesn't really do that, of course. Uh, China had been doing it um, and then in, and continued to do it even after the agreement with, with abandon. It didn't really slow them down. They just changed tactics a bit. Um, but a lot of my time over there was spent trying to implement that agreement, working with multiple parts of the Chinese government to try to work out how we would deal with this. How do we cooperate in this area? Very frustrating experience because in the end, I'm not sure the Chinese had any intention ever of complying with that agreement. I think it was it was purely about the narrative. They wanted to look as if they, they cared. Um, but in the end, it was just to delay and to uh, be able to give themselves time to reorganize and to go after us in a different way. Mm. Yeah, Holden pointed out something uh, I think that's important, which is, you know, often when I talk about the threat from China and economic espionage and, and, and hacking and intellectual property theft, people will say, well, you know, don't we do the same thing? And as Holden said, no, actually, we don't. So, for example, we, we couldn't care less about how Siemens, a German company, makes MRI machines or CAT scans. China cares very much about how that happens and, you know, how Samsung makes refrigerators or what have you, and they'll steal it. And they, that's, that's just part of what they do. And we, we don't do that. And so I can't imagine holding your, your mission. And I mean, you're going, so you go to the equivalent of the Chinese police there and, and you say, what, we have a hacking case or how, how does that work? <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. So that there, it's the Ministry of Public Security was our sort of main interlocutors there, um, and yeah. So we would we would come talk to them, um, it, but you know there was a whole lot of vetting, obviously, because the concern there were a couple of concerns. One, you know, we wanted to ensure that it was a purely criminal operation, that it wasn't essentially a proxy group, which is very frequent, where there are groups of you know criminal hackers that are loosely or very closely connected to the Chinese government and are kind of operating at their behest. There's been a number of stories recently out in the press about that. And so we have to be careful um, that we were essentially not alerting them to, you know, hey, are we telling them about an operation? Make sure that we knew it was something that was purely criminal. Um, but then also there was always a concern that if we alerted them to someone with, that was highly skilled, were they just going to go and recruit them um, and then to use them against us? And so it was always a kind of a constant dance of figuring out, all right, what's the what's the likelihood that they're going to act on this versus what they're going to gain from it and see that this person had access, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it, it was there was a lot of background work before we ever went to them to make a request. And obviously, as they stopped, they start, you know, as time went on and they did less and less work, um, less and less cooperation, 
people became more and more reluctant um, to provide them any information whatsoever. The worry was they were going to use it against us each time. Right. Very, very tough assignment. Um, well, again, China in the news with regard to Russia asking China for help uh, with Ukraine, um, even down to food and, and materiel for their soldiers. You've been on the ground there. Uh, what's this, the mindset? What do you think China is trying to think through and process right now vis-a-vis their relationship with Russia? Yeah, I, th- I think they're in a really tough spot. My guess, and this is based on that sort of trying to read the you know proverbial tea leaves and the reports, is that you know Putin came or, or you know for the Olympics, told Xi that he was going to you know do some very limited military operation to clean out quote unquote you know some threats that existed maybe in the Donbas area or around Crimea, but painted it as a very limited sort of um, incursion. She acquiesced to that or you know, didn't have any protest. Um, and then obviously this turned into something very, very different. Um, but it puts the Chinese in an incredibly difficult position. They say they don't know anything about it. Well, then how good of a partnership do they have, right? And they kind of look like the junior partner in many ways, right? Where everyone sort of assumed that Russia was the one clamoring to, to connect to China. Um, if the reality is Putin has nothing to lose and he can be much, you know, he's much less risk averse than she. And I think that is the case. He can actually control the relationship in a lot of ways, as we've sort of seen it, seen it done. Of course, the flip side is if they say, oh, yeah, we absolutely knew about it. Well, then how could they have let it happen? Right. And so I think they're trying to thread a very difficult needle here. Um, and you'll see that there's been some, you know, the, um, uh, the Chinese ambassador to the United States recently had an op ed and there have been some other things coming out from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They're trying to thread a very, very small uh, needle here. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's puts them in a really difficult position yeah. in the short run. It, it's hard. What do you know, they have a lot of, um, this is going to cause problems for a lot of the work they've been doing in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. It causes a lot of chaos, but in the long run, I think in many ways they're Russia causing problems and taking the attention of the United States and, and Europe and focusing it there gives China a freer hand in, in Asia. Um, and so I think it can actually be strategically very helpful for them, um, even if it tactically in the, in the short run, it, it can cause some problems. Wow. Really, really good insights there. Um, this is not all a uh, binary equation. It's um, it could be good news, bad news for them. And cer- certainly with the traditional Asian culture, the all important face saving and lacking embarrassment. This is embarrassing, as you said, for, for them. This, this, you know, Russia, Russia went off and did something probably that they weren't really fully disclosing to China. And now it's just horribly embarrassing. China's made some fairly good comments about how this is disturbing. It's, it's, they, they don't like this. And they're unlikely to give full assistance to, to Russia, if any. Quite frankly, but you're you're right. Let's not forget China. China has their eyes on Taiwan, and so they they're watching this very closely as to how Americans respond to a country uh, invading a neighboring territory. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I'm, just to kind of take it to on the intelligence side of this, I'm, and there's been some reports of this. I mean, if if, if I were Xi Jinping, I would be furious at, at at the you know Ministry of State Security, who is the the external sort of intelligence service there. How come they didn't pick this up? Why couldn't they see this coming? Why didn't I get this information that it was is coming so I could have planned or or tried to stop it? So I mean, really, it's a it's a huge intelligence failure on their part, especially when the U.S. is broadcasting this intel to the entire world over multiple months period that this is what's going to happen, and and still what you have to surmise from this is the MSS was poo pooing this and saying that that's not true. The, their own sources were saying that you know essentially it's not going to happen. Um, which means, you know, their sources that they are running in Russia failed. Um, and it's possible maybe the Russians are doubling them back and using them against the Chinese to give them, you know, bad information. Um, but it's really fascinating to watch because uh, while I do think that, you know, they do see the U.S. as their number one adversary for both of them, and that's what's really pushing them into this marriage of convenience, um, there's a number of places where they still continue to have a rivalry. And in the long run, they don't agree on a number of things. Um, it's just that the U.S., they they disagree with a lot more fervently right now than than each other. Right, right. Yeah, there's a whole, I, I've got a column out uh, this week in MSNBC Daily on, the, on really going deep beneath the battle for Ukraine, the espionage, the spy versus spy mm. that's going on that we simply never will see and may never hear about, quite frankly, but it's fascinating. Um, 
Okay, I want to I, I want to get to another assignment of yours, and that is the White House. And and again, people may be learning for the first time. Hey, not only does the FBI assign people abroad, but they've got folks at the White House. What what was your assignment? What was that about? Yeah, so I was the director for counterintelligence at the National Security Council at the White House for um, right after I came back from from China. Um, I had had some fair amount of interaction with the NSC. Uh, both in Moscow, but more in Beijing. It was just obviously they were heavily involved in the policy towards China. There were a number of issues that were going on. Um, China's fox hunt, and it's been in the news now. And the Bureau's been doing some great prosecutions of essentially um, you know, China running operations in the U.S. to get these quote-unquote corrupt officials, um, probably less corrupt, more just opposing Xi. So that, that pulled me into um, the NSC. And um, while I was there, I mo- mostly focused on China, but but obviously did a, a fair amount of Russia work. There was a lot going on at the time with Russia, as there as there always was. But you're right. I mean, I sort of make the joke that you know there's <laughs> there's only one more hostile place for an FBI agent than Moscow and Beijing, and that was the Trump White House. Um, and so you know there was not a huge amount of love for FBI and intel community in general. And I was there about six months after the administration got started. Mm. And it was much better from what I hear from people than at the beginning. And I say that there were some, uh, there were some wonderful people who were, um, you know, political appointees who were brought into it. But it was a little bit crazy sometimes to, to meet people who literally thought you were part of the deep state and, you know, were trying to bring down the United States and America. And, you know, and I'm just like, no, I, I have I live in Arlington. I got three kids. Like I just, I'm just doing my job. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of depth here besides that. Um, but they wanted to see a conspiracy, um, you know, kind of in all this stuff. And so working through that was, was not part of the job that I really anticipated. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of them kind of came around to the fact that like, oh, I see you're just, just professionals. You may make mistakes, but they're not necessarily, you know, malicious or nefarious. They're just people make mistakes sometimes. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're part of a larger conspiracy. You, you mentioned the reality that no no FBI agent thinks when they're getting this really rather prestigious assignment to the White House, National Security Council, and, and nor, by the way, any street-level FBI agent who's knocking on a citizen's door. At no time do they ever env- could they ever have envisioned that they'd have to first explain themselves as to know, you know, whether or not I can be trusted, whether or not I'm part of some deep state. I, you know, I'm just here to do my job. And were you at the White House when Trump fired FBI Director Jim Comey? No. So I was still, um, so funnily enough, um, I had uh, met Director Comey. He had come over to, um, to Beijing while I was there. And um, I was actually slated to come back and to be one of his um, special assistants. And so <laughs> we were in um, Beijing at the time and, um, you know, it's a 12 hour time difference or 12 or 13 to pay on the time of year. And um, so everything kind of happens overnight. And so my wife uh, woke me up with an expletive <laughs> and threw her phone in my face to show me the news um, that, um, that Comey had been fired. Um, and so it was after that, I was sort of adrift trying to figure where to go and ended up at the, at the, at the white house. So it's interesting that I was, Slated to kind of work with um, with Director Comey, and then ended up sort of almost in the polar opposite sort of camp mm. um, at the White House, trying to trying to work there. Now, you know, you, your perspective on where we are right now, and the commentary coming from some folks on the very far right, some Trump folks, saying, "Boy, if President Trump was still the president, uh, Russia wouldn't have gone." into Ukraine. You've, you've been at the White House. You've been at the National Security Council. You've been in Russia. What are your thoughts on why Putin did this now, whether or not Trump constrained Putin or whether Trump set the table for this? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, um, I, I can answer part of that easily. I don't. Th- there's nothing that I saw within my time at the White House, which would make me feel that that, that administration was better at restraining Putin than the current administration um, is. Whether or not he encouraged it, I didn't see anything of that sort. But what I will say is that, and, and I don't put this on any particular administration, there is a, I think, an exhaustion almost um, within the American administration, just in general, the, with the workers, with people um, after Iraq, after Afghanistan, 
for large types of interventions. You saw what happened in Syria, even with a very small footprint, um, you know, only a couple of thousand um, special forces we had there um, that was ended under the Trump administration. And there's a real reluctance to commit, you know, American troops or any type of energies to these outside um, conflicts. Um, so I think part of that is the, the timing of it, I think, has much more to do with just general sort of systemic American um, you know, reluctance to be involved overseas as, as, as involved as we were. But, you know, I, I certainly don't think that, that the Trump administration um, was, was better. I, I will say something that came up time and again, and I, I don't know that the truth is, but there was a one extra kind of detail that, we, that people always felt like they had to work around at the NSC was what was going to be the reaction to anything to, to do with, with Russia. And what I mean by that is that it was not simply one of those other national security issues. Because of the investigations, because of the allegations, it had so many political implications beyond just a pure national security issue. It was extremely difficult to, to, to navigate. Fiona Hill, who had worked with um, Colsey there as well, has talked about this a lot. In many ways, I, it, it was so much time and energy was spent trying to navigate around this. And so people's feelings weren't hurt or there was no allegation that someone didn't win an election or that it wasn't fair or that sort. When in reality, most of us just wanted to deal with the major threat that Russia posed to us. And that's what we were trying to stay focused on. But the politics certainly became um, difficult to make or made it difficult to navigate around that. Yeah. Yeah. What are you doing these days, Holden? What You've got a wealth of experience. What, uh, what are you doing? What can you share? And uh, is there anything we can, we can plug in terms of uh, business interests or, or otherwise? Oh, thanks. Um, so I, I left the Bureau about a year and a half ago um, and then um, started an advisory firm with another um, former uh, special agent, uh, Bill Priestep. And it's a company called Trenchcoat, uh, Trenchcoat Advisors. We help protect companies from nation state threats. We focus on the kind of the people aspect of it. So in our mind, one individual inside a company can run circles around any cyber or physical security. And we feel there's a real dearth of expertise out there um, helping companies. A lot of cyber expertise, but not much dealing with the, the people part of this. Um, so we've really tried to focus on this area and, and provide advisory services to mostly companies, but other types of uh, organizations as well. Yeah. Well, I, I can tell you this, um, your kind of experience and Bill Priestap, your partner, uh, who I know, uh, who I've worked with through the years, who ultimately succeeded me as assistant director uh, uh, for counterintelligence at FBI. Uh, the two of you together sound like quite a team. So if there's, if there are any business folks out there looking for some some great counsel advice um, consulting you're you're be smart to reach out to trenchcoat and holden triplet so i want to thank you for and your family for your service to the nation uh, in particularly difficult assignments and i'm glad we're still able to laugh about your your three hostile assignments to uh, moscow beijing <laughs> and the trump white house and um, i've i've gotten some good takeaways and perspectives on what's going on in russia and china thanks for being with us holden my pleasure thank you very much frank yep. take care thanks for joining me for this insightful discussion with Holden Triplett on Russia, China, Ukraine, what it all means now and moving forward. Join us next time as we continue to go above and beyond the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for the Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad. With Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab an extra latte. 
Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.